Welcome again one more time to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, the preaching pastor here at Encounter. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, we're in uh, part five of a series right now called People Matter. And just uh, before we get into the content of this last installment, I just want to give you a special invitation to next week where we start a brand new series called God Is Not. And the idea behind that series is that oftentimes our hang-ups about who God is or who God isn't it is based on something that God never claimed to be or God never claimed to do in the first place. So we're taking a look at a few different ways of, of mistaken beliefs that we hold about God, even though he never claimed to be those things. So what we're doing next week is we're setting aside our beliefs about God to truly try to experience God as he really is. Next week, God is not. It's a perfect series to invite somebody to as, uh, as we all kind of have to surrender some of our mistaken beliefs over to him, and we start doing that with ourselves. All right, part five of the series, People Matter, is a, is a series that we get into now where we say that uh, people matter to God, all people matter to God, you matter to God, no matter what. And today we're taking a look at how outsiders matter to God. And, and just to kind of get us on the same page, I want to acknowledge that all of us at some point or another have been and are or will be outsiders. And, and we know we have those experiences every time. Maybe you go to a ballpark or a game, sporting event, whatever it is, and, and you know you're kind of wading into hostile territory. Maybe you're covered head to toe in maize and blue, and you're going to Spartan Stadium, and you're like, hey, I am an outsider in this place. I actually had a friend who, uh, who went to a rare baseball game, an interleague play where the Chicago Cubs were at the Chicago White Sox. And as a diehard Cubs fan, he could not resist going and wearing his Cubs jersey, except for he knew he was wading into hostile territory where he would be an outsider. And so even though it's like 80 degrees outside, he's like got a jacket zipped all the way up because he doesn't know who he's going to sit next to, right? So he goes and he finds his little, you know, his spot and kind of like looks up and down the row, makes sure that it's safe, right? And, and then just before the first pitch, he like takes off his jacket and shows everybody around that he's a Cubs fan on the south side of Chicago. And of course, there's like a bunch of like heckling and, and like, like comments coming at him. He's like, okay, that's right. I'm an outsider in this place. I'm prepared for this. What he was not prepared for is somebody actually in the third inning to throw their nachos at his jersey. And if you know anything about like the prices of ballpark concessions, that's a commitment <laughs> to the cause, right? Like $15 nachos coming at him. Anyway, he knew, he knew that he was an outsider in that place. And listen, if you're at church today, there's a good chance that at some point or another, you've also felt like an outsider, not at a ballpark, but here in worship. I mean, I get these comments from fairly regularly from many of you who just say, like, listen, I didn't grow up hearing these stories. When you, when you say things like flip to John chapter 4, I don't know where John chapter 4 is, which is why we put it on the screen. Most people follow along that way anyway. That's okay. I mean, I get the comments around here of people who are like, hey, listen, I, what prevents me from joining a small group, it just, it seems to me like everybody else is going to know more about God, more about the Bible than me in that small group. And that's okay, right? There, I get comments, I hear comments around here all the time of people who are like, listen, it just seems like whatever circle I'm in at church, it always seems like I'm the outsider in this place. Maybe it's because you didn't grow up in West Michigan. I actually was talking to one woman one time. She said she's lived in West Michigan for 25 years. And she said, it still feels like I'm on the outside looking in. 
Maybe it's your past that maybe, maybe dictates or, or decides for you that you're an outsider. Maybe it's your present, things that you're currently struggling with. If everybody knew, then, you, then they would also know that you're an outsider. And so like, you have this hesitation to even engage because you feel like you're an outsider looking in. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what, that's what the story, the encounter that Jesus has with these people this morning leads us into is how does Jesus relate to those outsiders looking in? And to just kind of up the ante a little bit, this is what we do oftentimes in the church, right? In, in the church, what we do is we decide. We have a way. These are the things you have to believe. These are the things that you have to do. And if you don't believe these things or if you don't do these things, you're on the outside, and I get to decide who's on the inside. And once you're outside, you're out, and you're in, you're in. And it's just fixed, it's static, it's not going anywhere. That's just the way that it is. And we're going to see Jesus this morning through this story do something radically different with this model. And in fact, he gives us an entirely different paradigm to decide, to dictate who's out and who's in. As we get into the story this morning, I have to acknowledge that last week we heard the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, who in every way seemed like a religious, spiritual, moral insider. And remember last week we heard this story from Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and we saw that even though he was dead sure about just about everything in his life, it turns out after meeting Jesus, he found out he was dead wrong and had to start from the very, very beginning, the very beginning, as Jesus tells him he must be born again to start all over brand new. And today we see Jesus deal not with a religious, spiritual, moral insider, but a religious, moral, spiritual outsider in the Samaritan woman. And I love how John, when he's eyewitness account, he's telling these stories, he, he butts these things right, sandwiches these things right up next to each other as a way to tell us that no matter who you are, where you are, there was no one, there's no one outside of the need of grace like Nicodemus, the insiders. And there is no one outside of the reach of grace. Today, John chapter 4. So if you'd like to follow along in a Bible in front of you, you can go ahead and take one out and flip to John chapter 4. You can keep those if you'd like it. Otherwise, you can also follow along on the words on the screen behind me. We're phone friendly, so you can just Google John 4, look it up in your Bible app as well. It starts off this way in John chapter 4, verse 4. And it says, that now Jesus, that's now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Better yet, he chose to go through Samaria. This is kind of important geography along the way, so I decided to bring a little map with me. You can kind of see, and the nation of Israel is on the, the green area on the left in between the two bodies of water, and the southern area is in red. That's Jerusalem, Judea, where Jesus currently is. He's trying to get to the green area up at the top there. It's called Galilee. The only issue is the gap is in the middle is a region of the world called at that time, Samaria. So typically you think you just, hey, straightest, uh, fastest way, A to B is a straight line, go right through Samaria. That's a problem. Because the Jewish people, which Jesus was, they could not stand the Samaritans. They loathed the Samaritans. They do everything they possibly could to avoid bumping into the Samaritans. So they'd actually go all the way around, crossing the Jordan River, not once, but then twice to get back in. It's a three, four-day journey going all the way around. would add six days 
onto the journey. That's how much they did not want to be in this place of Samaria. The reason is, by the way, Jesus goes right straight through and the yellow dot is where this story takes place. The reason why they did not want to be caught dead in Samaria is a thousand-year-old reason. It's because when the nation split into two, Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, the Assyrians came. The northern kingdom had very little interest in the things of God, and, the, and this Assyrians, this local superpower of the day, came in, and, and they just squashed that northern kingdom. And they carted off many of the people into exile. And what they did, this is so important for the story, for this story later on, what they did is they would, in fact, invite neighboring kings and tribes into that northern kingdom, into that region that they just squashed so that the children of the people who are carted off in exile don't get this idea in mind that they're going to avenge their moms and dads and then get revenge on the Assyrians and like cause all of this trouble. So they invite these neighboring nations in to intermingle, to bring their own new traditions into the place, to bring their own beliefs and their own religion into that place, to mix it all up so that this northern people didn't have any religious, cultural, spiritual, any kind of identity at all. And what's important in this story is that that didn't happen just once. They didn't bring in just one other king, one other tribe, or two, or three. But as the story is told in the Old Testament and First Kings, they brought in five different nations to intermingle with their own traditions and their own faith, and their own identity, to mix it up in that northern area and to create something entirely new. You just hang on to that. We're coming back to that concept. But for right now, the Jewish people in the southern kingdom, they couldn't stand that the northern kingdom, the people, they just, they didn't even resist that process at all. They just said okay and accepted the whole thing. And they couldn't stand that they would just allow this to happen. And so the bickering, the words started into wars. And there's so much bad blood that in Jesus' day, they wouldn't even walk through. They'd have to extend the trip by six days and walk all the way around. But Jesus, no, no, Jesus, he doesn't go all the way around because people matter to God. All people matter to God. You matter to God no matter what. So that's why Jesus, John says, he had to go through Samaria because he had something he wanted to show us. Continuing on in the passage in Verse 5, it says that Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which is where that yellow dot was, almost in the geographic center. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That story is in Genesis. We're not going to go in there today. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. I sat next to somebody at an event a couple weeks ago who was from Phoenix. And I was saying at the time, Michigan was unseasonably cold. It was in the 60s. And I was just complaining about that. And he going, this feels great to me. It's like 120 degrees in Phoenix right now. Planes can't even take off. I'm glad I made it here today. It's so hot in the desert. It's important for us to realize this story takes place in one of the hottest regions of the world at one of the hottest parts of the day. What is he doing hanging out in noon? Remember from last week, if you were here, we said that the time of day holds not only like a light darkness, but as a, as a spiritual sense as well of, of lightness and darkness. 
And when he says it's noon, it means that the shadows are growing very, very small. The sun is directly overhead, and there's almost no place to hide. Everything's about to be laid bare. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me a drink? And he had to do this because his disciples had gone into town to find a Chick-fil-A. Paraphrasing. No, they went into town to buy food like reasonable people. Jesus hangs out this hottest part of the day at the well, just waiting for somebody to come by. Nobody's coming by. It's noon. Why would anybody come by? I think, for events we'll get to in just a minute, I think that Jesus had this interaction, had this encounter in mind since the beginning of time because he's just waiting for the right moment to show us what he is about to do. And it like blows minds. But okay, Jesus is hanging out here by the well. He doesn't have a bucket, right? He's just waiting for somebody to come by. But almost like it doesn't so much matter that Jesus had a bucket because remember this is the same Jesus who in John chapter 2, just two chapters previously, just turned water into wine. Like clearly, the physical barriers are not so much of an impediment to Jesus. Like he's the God of creation. Is a bucket really standing in his way? I mean, is that where things are for him right now? He created not only water, but like the molecules that make up water and the physical properties that allow the molecules to like bond, to better, bond together. Through him, all things were made. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians, like this is not the barrier. He sits there waiting for a woman to come at noon because he wants to ask her a question. And the question is, will you help me? Which is so interesting because if there is anybody in the history of the world who didn't need help, it's Jesus. But Jesus was honoring her with the question, with the request, will you help me? And if I could just deviate a little bit and make a comment about how we sometimes do church. Because sometimes what we do, the way that we do church comes across the world as arrogant and judgmental. Because it kind of seems like there's a fence in place. And we're on the inside and everybody else is on the outside. And because we're on the inside and everybody else is on the outside, we have all the answers. And we have all the resources. And we're willing to reach across and share some. The way that we do church sometimes is a way that's saying, listen, 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 I have all the answers you could ever ask and I'm willing to answer them if you're willing to come and meet me on my terms. Jesus turns this idea upside down and he asks this question, no, no, no. I'm not just gonna serve you, help you. I'm asking you to help me. I had two houses and two neighbors. One of them, I decided the first one, Kind of very naively, I decided, hey, listen, I want them to know Jesus like I know Jesus. And so I'm going to get out there and I'm going to serve him no matter what. Like if he's out there cutting his grass, I'm going to be like, hey, man, can I trim for you? Right? You need to borrow something? Hey, just to have it, whatever it is. Like, like listen, 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 I have the resources that you need. If you have a question, a spiritual question, like I'm a pastor, like I got answers for everything. Whatever you might answer, ask, I have an answer for it. It's all queued up. Here you go in a relationship, quite honestly, never even came remotely close to developing. Because I put myself up here, I put him down here, 
And he had no interest in, in meeting me because I was always going to be up here. He was always going to be down here. We moved, and this time I decided to do things a little differently. One of the very first questions that I asked my new neighbor, do you have a wheelbarrow I can borrow? And it's a silly thing, but he said yes. I knew he did because I watched him use it, and I <laughs> legit needed a wheelbarrow, right? But, but like, I asked him for help. He says, yes, a relationship starts to develop one, not where I have all of the answers and he doesn't at all, and, and, and I'm willing to dispense my wisdom to him, but one where we're like now meeting each other and having a mutually beneficial relationship with each other. Sometimes in the church, sometimes in our walks with Jesus, we feel like we have to have all of the answers and it's not worth having a conversation or asking a question if we don't already have the answers all lined up. One of the most beneficial relationship building, impactful statements you could ever make to somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus is a simple question, is a simple statement. I don't know. I've wondered about that too. What do you think? And being genuinely interested in their response. Will you give me a drink? It's a whole new paradigm that Jesus is offering. And at the same time, it's a new paradigm because they're different people. On almost every level, they're different people. He is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They're supposed to hate each other. He is a rabbi, so presumably he's an uprightly moral person. She, as we're going to start to find out, is there at noon for a reason. She doesn't want to bump into anybody. She has a past. He's a man. She's a woman. They're not supposed to talk in that culture. They're not supposed to be in the same room, let alone alone having a conversation. There's so many, he's got a name. His name is Jesus. Nicodemus had a name. He was an insider too. She just stays as the Samaritan woman. There's so many cultural barriers. There's so many physical thing, barriers in between them. Jesus is going across every single barrier in order to meet him. The question is, are we? But that's a question for another time. At this point, Jesus is crossing these barriers to meet her where she is. A conversation ensues. She starts talking to him. He goes, hey, listen, if you knew who it was that was offering you this living water, you would ask him for a drink. And you would drink from this water and you would never be thirsty again. And on a, just a physical level, that like picks her interest. And she said to him in verse 15, she said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then all of a sudden, everything starts to change for her in her world because Jesus changes his tone. And then he told her, go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right, you're right when you said that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man that you're now with, number six, is not your husband, what you have just said is quite true. Now there's layers onto this thing. And like the base layer is like, what's Jesus up to here? I mean, he's just messing with her, right? Like, hey, come into this well and I'll give you water that will satisfy you in every way and you'll never be thirsty again. Drink from this refreshing well. 
And then all of a sudden, he just throws her past it. Oh, and by the way, I know all about your past. Like, boom, roast it. Right? Like, what? Is he just poking? Is he messing with her? Is that kind of? No, that's not in the character of Jesus. I said there's layers onto this thing. The first layer isn't that. The first layer is him saying, hey, listen, you know on a personal level, you know how you get thirsty every day and you wake up and then you have to come here at noon. And that's embarrassing. And, and you draw water. What if you didn't have to do that again? Right? And, and then he like ramps it up to the next level. Is like, hey, listen, I get you. And I get that you've gone to person to person. I get that you have, a, you have a hole in your heart. I get that you have a loneliness in your heart. I get that you have this need for companionship, whatever it is. You have a hole, and, and I understand that. What if, instead of filling that gap with, from like person to person to person, what if filling that gap, you could fill that with me, and I'm going to call that the living water. And just like your thirst for this water, once you quench that, that need for companionship with me, fulfillment, meaning, purpose with me. You'll never have that loneliness again. What would that be like? But then there's a layer on top of that yet, yeah, because Jesus is having this conversation, not just with a woman, but it's almost like the whole nation. It's almost like the whole world. Because remember the story of why the Jews and the Samaritans were like cats and dogs in the first place. It's because the Syrians came and, and, they, and they filled the northern kingdom, Samaria, not just with one or two or three or four, but five other nations to intermingle with who they were to create something entirely new that really truly wasn't even a thing at all. Jesus, I think, is not only making a comment on this woman and her personal need, but he's making a comment about all the nations in the world and saying, this is what I'm about. I'm about not putting one person back together. I'm about putting all people, all peoples of all time and all nations back together. What you have said is true on a physical need for thirst, on a personal need in the fulfillment of your life and who's in it, and on a national, global level, I am here to meet all of your needs. What you have said is quite true. And the woman sees all of this happening, and she says, she gets it. In verse 25, she said, I know I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And what many commentators say, this is the clearest, this is the, the clearest statement of Jesus and his purpose and his divinity he has ever made. He said, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And so he honors her with that most direct depiction of who he is and what he came to do. You get the sense in the story that it's not so much like she is searching and seeking after God, but it's like God is radically and dramatically searching and seeking after her. It, 
if I could name the elephant in the room right now, we don't do this. Like you can talk to your neighbors, you can talk to whoever it is. You can talk to people right here at church who, who, who show up and they're just not sure about Jesus, mostly because they're not sure about Christians, about neighbors and church leaders like me. Because people are so confident in the radical and dramatic love of God in Jesus. But Christians come across as not that arrogant and judgmental, but we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Or another analogy that the Bible gives us is we're supposed to be the bride of Jesus and one with him, grafted into him. We're supposed to be that close with him, but we're not. People see us, people see the church as putting up fences and saying, you're out and I'm in. And that's all there is to it. So the question that I have is, why is it that Jesus came across as so radically different than this? And where have we gone wrong? One of the answers that I found that I'd like to share with you is in the words by a Fuller, former Fuller Seminary professor named Paul Hybert. And he talks about the way that we talk about who's in and who's out. And I think that this could be one of the most important conversations we could have as a church community in our development and who we become going forward in really any church, even if you're visiting today. Who's in and who's out? Because most of the time we as a church, we look at this using one of two different ways. Most of the time we use this and we say that it's grouping things together like things together using what's called a bonded set. And a bonded set is really using a barrier marker, a boundary marker. So a bounded set is like my yard. I don't have a fence in my yard, but every time I cut the grass in a line, right, like you know where my yard ends and where the neighbor's yard begins. And there's this unspoken rule that you don't come across into my yard unless I invite you, and I don't go across into your yard unless I'm invited. And then Dr. Henry Cloud writes a book named Boundaries, and he brings us into a relational sense. And I'm a huge fan, so I'd recommend it. And he, and he talks about, listen, listen, you can do this on a relational level and deciding like the communication that somebody gives or doesn't give and, and whether or not they're welcome into your space or you're welcome into their space. And, and it's helpful to have these boundary lines drawn up to decide where that fence is going to be. And it, and it tends to serve people in a lot of different ways. Now we do this even in like geometry, right? Bring us back to like high school and you like look at, well, if you're going to define what something is, what a shape is, a triangle, for example, a triangle is, if you didn't know, a shape, right, with three sides and three angles. And that's what it is. That's the boundary marker. It's a bonded set. Everything outside of that is basically four shapes or it's got four sides. It's not a triangle. It might be a square. It might be a rectangle. It might be a bunch of things. It's not a triangle. It's outside of the boundary marker of what a shape is. 
But that's only one way of deciding what something either is or isn't. There's another way to decide what something is and isn't. And it's not through a bonded set, which is marked by the perimeter, attention towards where those boundaries, the fences are. The other way is deciding where the center is, and it's called a center set. This is going to get a little close to home, so I'm not going to make anybody do anything weird, but just like come along with me, okay? When you're deciding... Whether someone or something is bald, it's helpful not to have a bonded set, but a centered set. Because a center set is just defining what is the exact paradigm model center of what it means to be bald. And I brought a picture with me. This is what baldness looks like in its most purest form. Amen? So we got, we got Mr. Clean, right? The Procter & Gamble spokesperson. I mean, this guy is bald, Right? We all know that. But then there's, but then there's like, kind of as you move towards the outside, you start to get like, like not bald anymore. And so, so the opposite of that one, on the farthest away from the center, I would say, is this fellow right here, Albert Einstein. You know, he was a lot of things, and I don't understand a lot of what he wrote or talked about, but I know he's not bald. He's always got this crazy hair going in every direction, right? So we got these two, these two images or these two guys, and we define what baldness is, not by its perimeter, because there's so many things that get, like, murky in between, right? We, we, uh, we see a baby is born, right? And she's cute and adorable, but she's also, like, super bald, like Mr. Clean, bald, but we, don't tend, we tend not to call her bald because her, her hair is growing in. It just hasn't yet. So it's all about the, the, move, the orientation and the movement either toward or away from the center to decide whether or not someone is bald. You look at the baby, and she's definitely close to the Mr. Clean picture, right? But her orientation and her movement is away from Mr. Clean instead of toward him. Are you following me? One more example, just to make sure, is that um, some of you have been around here for a little while, and you know that while I have a beautiful, luscious head of hair, it's not quite as thick as it used to be. It's a little thin, it's a little light, to the point that I went to the, the haircut place, and and they were selling haircuts for like $9 a haircut. And I'm like, yes, that is a deal too good to give up. And so I buy a ton of them, right? It's a you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. So I go home and I'm like bragging to my wife of this amazing deal. And she's like, how many did you get? And I'm like, 15 haircuts, nine bucks each. What a deal. And I'm thinking she's going to be super proud of me. And she goes, oh, 15. That's optimistic. <laughs> Savage. She's not wrong. I started sharing them with my kids. Like, here, have a haircut on me, right? Because, because even though I'm probably more on the Einstein scale, just on the hair side of things, right, my orientation and my movement is toward Mr. Clean and no longer away from him. You see what I'm saying? Okay, here's where the rubber meets the road. In the church today, we have tended to group us together as what it means to be a Christian as a bonded set. We define the perimeter and we say this is what counts as in and this is what counts as out. 
And to some extent, we have to. We have a belief page on the website about who we believe God is. He's triune, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he was a physical, real, historical person, and the resurrection was a physical, real event that changed history. But we take it to such an extent that said it's almost like the perimeter is the only thing that matters. And the problem with that is there's no room for movement. There's no room for growth. It's fixed. It's static. The way that the New Testament church talked about their faith is like there was a center, a well of living water that's refreshing to the soul, and his name is Jesus. And what matters is not whether you're in or you're out, the perimeter of the fence. What matters is your orientation and your movement either toward him as the center or away from him as the center. And what matters here is that there's movement. It's dynamic. It's changing. It's growing. It's being challenged. It's being invigorated. This is why, this is why you have passages like Philippians chapter 4 where Paul, a guy by all metrics, is in. Listen, he, is, he wrote half of the New Testament. He is super in. But Paul writes about salvation. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's not enough just to be in because we are journeying towards the center who isn't anything more or less than Jesus Christ himself as the center of living water, refreshing to the soul. For the New Testament church, they didn't have a concept about just being in and being done. They didn't have language to describe what it might mean to simply come in and, and to not be completely infatuated with the person who was Jesus Christ. They couldn't imagine a scenario, a faith life, where somebody didn't, didn't care about surrendering their lives and worshiping the God of the universe. They, they couldn't believe in, in somebody who said, no, no, I'm in, but I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to, I don't need to commune with other Christians and to do life with each other. I, I, I'm fine right where I am. I'm fixed. I'm static. I'm unmoving. They said, no, I couldn't imagine that because for them, it was all about the center. And so they were constantly working that out. They're constantly journeying towards the center. They're constantly taking parts of their life, parts of their heart that didn't belong and chipping away at them because they were trying to get to the center. They were constantly taking parts of their life that needed to, needed to be cultivated and needed to be grown in the fruit of the Spirit and journey towards the center. They were constantly moving toward Him. There's this old Australian proverb that comes from the outback of Western Australia where there's almost no rain, no water, desert everywhere. And the ranchers would say, listen, you could keep the cattle on your property two different ways. You could build a gigantic fence all the way around them to trap them in. But why? When you could just dig a well and the cattle won't wander off. It's their source of life. This is the challenge that I have for you, church, for all of us. Is that what would it look like if we as a church stopped putting up fences to decide who's in and who's out and invited each other and ourselves to sit and to drink the refreshing 
living water that is Jesus Christ. What a tremendous gift to the world. Stand up and let's pray together, if you would. Gracious God, a lot of us in the room, starting with me maybe, God, I have to repent and turn around because I'm journeying away from you as the source of my life. I'm journeying away from you every time I try to put up fences or barriers to to try to keep people out, to try to remind myself that I'm in. I have to turn around. I have to repent from the ways that, that I've become stagnant and unmoving. God, you have called us to be living and growing, to be challenged, invigorated, to journey towards the center who is you, Jesus Christ. God, by your Holy Spirit, give us the courage to take that first step or that next step towards you as our center. Jesus, I pray for anybody in the room right now who's looking at taking that step towards you. God, I pray that you encourage them. God, I pray that you continue to work in them to this thing that you started, that you see it on to completion so that one day we'll be able to sit most fully drinking you in, our Savior, that you refresh our soul. Thank you for loving us, God, and loving us enough that wherever we find ourselves in proximity to this well, you love us enough not to leave us there, but to call us in. In your name we pray, amen.